Welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast, where your host, Isabel Ross, interviews experts and athletes in the field of endurance sports. Isabel Ross is a three-time Australian long-distance mountain running representative at the World Championships with a best finishing place of 10th female. Twice Australian trail champion, she has won the six-foot track marathon, run a sub-three-hour marathon, and won a 24-hour track race overall with a distance of 198.7 kilometers, as well as competing in and winning grueling ultramarathons in rugged, mountainous terrain. Isabel has raced all over the world, including participating in the notorious Barkley Marathons. Isabel is an Australian and USA-accredited endurance coach working with athletes of all levels and is a certified UESCA ultra running coach. She's also a personal trainer and podcast host. Are injuries or niggles ruining your enjoyment of running and hindering your performance? Get on top of these and see the specialists at Health and High Performance. Utilising the latest in technology and with a wealth of experience, the team at Health and High Performance can assist you with all your running, injury and performance needs. So get back to enjoying your running and achieving the results you are capable of. Head to healthhp.com.au forward slash run or find them on Instagram at healthhighperformance. Health and High Performance are located in Montalbert, Melbourne, but are available for telehealth appointments not only Australia-wide, but also around the world. Contact them on their website to find out more. Wild Earth Australia are the online store to help you make the most out of the outdoors with top quality gear at great prices. Peak Endurance podcast listeners can use the discount code PEAKENDURANCE in all capitals to get 10% off at checkout. Head on over to wildearth.com.au to get everything you need for your next adventure. Hello listeners and welcome to the podcast. Episode 119 is an interview with Louise Burke. Louise is a sports dietitian with 40 years of experience in the education and counselling of elite athletes. She worked at the Australian Institute of Sport for 30 years, first as Head of Sports Nutrition and then as as Chief of Nutrition Strategy. She was the team dietitian for the Australian Olympic teams for the 1996 to 2012 Summer Olympic Games. Her publications include over 350 papers in peer-reviewed journals and book chapters and the authorship or editorship of several textbooks on sports nutrition. She is an editor of the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. Louise was a founding member of the Executive of Sports Dietitians Australia and is a director of the IOC Diploma in Sports Nutrition. She was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia in 2009 for her contribution to sports nutrition. Louise was appointed as Chair in Sports Nutrition in the Mary MacKillop Institute of Health Research at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne in 2014 and took up this position in a full-time capacity in 2020. I personally have been a fan of Louise's ever since I was a cyclist and read her book, The Complete Guide to Food for Sports Performance. That is where I started to develop my love of all things nutrition. So I find this chat so incredibly informative. I really hope you do too. And as I always say, if you do enjoy this episode, I would love it if you went on over to Apple Podcasts to rate, review and subscribe. I know it's um, some time out of your day and a bit of a hassle, but I do really appreciate it because it helps grow the audience and the show. And like I always say, I really appreciate your feedback and support. 
Now, if you want to be the best athlete you can be, you deserve the best coaching you can get. Peak Endurance Coaching has the personal touch you won't get elsewhere that will help you achieve your running goals with customised plans that reflect your commitments in life and your athletic history. You will become fitter, faster and stronger whilst becoming part of the Peak Endurance Coaching community. Don't waste a minute of your running journey. Email me, Isabel, at peakendurancecoaching.com.au to get a program designed just for you started. Enjoy this incredibly informative chat with Louise. Hey, it's Tom here, and today I want to talk about what I like to call the balance dilemma, and that's the, the balance we have between our training, our social lives, and work. I find I'm at my most peace and then my happiest when I balance these three things together. But I feel like to get a, uh, a good amount of growth or a, a certain amount of growth in uh, one of these areas, you kind of need to make that balance out of whack temporarily. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about this just recently. You know, when you're training to peak for an event for a race, you're kind of you're not hanging out with friends as much. You're not thinking uh, at work as good as you could and not, probably not being productive as you could because you're thinking about your race and your training and you're tired and, and you're fatigued. So your balance is out of whack and uh, you, I, you're not 100% happy, for me anyway. But you need to do that. You need to put your life out of balance to be able to peak for these events and be the best you can be. And that just, you can set the same with social life. You know, if you social more so than your training your training starts to get off a bit off the rails a bit and work too and but then if you're working more than the other two take a hit you know to improve in your work area and that's what i like to call the balance uh kind of equation and the point i'm realizing is i think we we today we always talk about how we always need to be in balance because that's when we're happiest and most peaceful but I think I'd like to make the argument, really, to make progress in a certain area, uh, you, you need to be out of whack. And I think the, the important part, though, is to identify when you're out of this whack and when you're out of balance, and then to realise that you can't do that forever and it's only temporary for a certain race or, or whatever it is. And you need to understand that once you've done that and you've you've worked hard in that certain area for a while that you need to come back down and need to rebalance and replan. And that's what I wanted to talk about today, just a bit, because a lot of people are talking about how you need to be always in sync and need to be balanced all the time. And I understand where people are coming from, but I also want to kind of promote this thought that maybe sometimes we need to be out of balance if we want to achieve great things or to achieve our goals. I think it's just a thought that's worth to be had. Hi, Louise, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Good morning. Now, can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and how you became interested in sports and nutrition and all that sort of stuff? Well, I was always interested in sport and I was always interested in nutrition, but I didn't realise that you could um, have a career in that. In fact, I didn't even know that dietitians existed when I started university. 
and it was just a real accident that um, I ended up studying dietetics. Um, and then partway through my dietetic course, I, um, was, I just had a, one of those chance encounters with um, Richard Reed, who was the convener of the dietetic course at Deakin, but also one of my lecturers. And he'd invited us home for um, a meal with his family, all the, all the dietetic students, because in those days, you know, classes, the maximum class was um, 25 dietitians from um, each year being produced at Deakin. And we were eating his wife's wonderful cooking and I noticed that he just had a plate of cheese and lettuce. And um, oh, I wow. remarked I remarked on what was he doing? Like, why wasn't he enjoying all, all that was on offer? And he told me that he was um, preparing for a marathon, that he'd um, just read a paper that the Scandinavians had produced showing that you could store more muscle glycogen if you depleted glycogen stores early in the week by running and having a low-carb diet. And then suddenly switching back to carbs. And it was like a light bulb when I was in my brain, finding some way of um, connecting the, the sport and nutrition angle. So I, um, I nagged him to allow me to drop one of the subjects at, um, within the course and do a special series of um, sort of um, studies, just study group things with him um, so that I could learn from him a bit more about sports nutrition. And so that's basically the way that I got involved. Um, and then my next really lucky um, chance encounter was um, I'm a Mad Saints supporter, St Kilda Football Club. Yeah. And I wrote to Trevor Barker, who was the, um, the right. star player, um, you know, star player in a hopeless team. And I <laughs> tried to convince him that, um, that nutrition was going to be the saviour of the Saints. They'd finally, you know, win another flag if um, they could all eat well. And, you know, I think back that now, he must have received like hundreds of letters a week from young girls, you know, all <laughs> telling him things. But he took my letter and he passed it on to the team doctor. And the doctor rang me and said, would I be interested in coming down and working with the Saints? So, like, those two wow. absolutely random events really shaped my life. And, you know, I, I thank the generosity of, of both those people. And, you know, suddenly there was an opportunity for me to start working as a sports dietitian, even before that wasn't a recognised um, term. And all those sort of opportunities allowed me to make up things as I went along and then start connecting with other people who'd had similar experiences of, of putting it together for themselves to then make it a more organised and, and um, sort of strategic path to working with athletes rather than it all being just sort of random events. That's that's amazing to hear, especially because nowadays we take it for granted that it's such an important part of sports to think that, you know, you were at the forefront of it all. Yeah, and, the thing, you know, the fact there was such sort of a, a, an accident, if, if these things yeah. hadn't eventuated, where, where might else I be? You know, doing something yeah. else probably maybe maybe curing cancer or something more important. But, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, no, I, I think, think this is pretty important too. <laughs> You know, so, on a different uh, level, but it's still important. And, and I'm sure it has um, repercussions for other health, um, you know, um, modalities as well, no doubt. Yeah, this is one, one of the interesting things to see. Um, my husband is a, a researcher and he's more into the health angle, although he's you yeah. know, been involved in sport also. But over the years, we've been able to do more collaborative work where something that we're interested in that we can study 
with um, athletes and have them yeah. amplifying an issue that we wanted to investigate. And then once we've got the results, then we could apply it to the community. And you know, some of um, our most important papers or some of the, the um, activities that we've done that get you know most highly cited are around this idea of protein spread over the day and how much protein you might need if you're in energy deficit. So when you're trying to lose weight. Now, mm. these are... Um, these are some research projects that we did at the AIS and we used resistance-trained athletes to find the results, but those have been then turned into recommendations of how we might feed elderly or ageing populations and particularly to try and make them aware of the importance of exercise and strategic nutrition around it so that we can um, help either reverse or prevent sarcopenia and some of sarcopenia and some of the... Um, diseases of modern um, society so there's you know nice ways in which we've been able to show yes that what elite athletes want to know also has a message for the community and yeah. elite athletes can help find those um, answers more quickly so then we've got the information to, to use for a greater community benefit oh that's excellent yeah that's really good um, and protein, yeah, that's a really interesting topic too. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, there's and there's so much. I mean, I'm 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 obviously not a dietitian or, or or anything remotely like that. But it just really interests me, and um and that's why I wanted you on the podcast um, because I know that you are like a, a world leader on on this topic. And and I was looking in um you know, and you were talking about that your lecturer who was um carb depleting obviously to carb load and um i was reading in your article contemporary nutrition strategies to optimize performance in distance runners and race walkers that race preparation should include strategies to store muscle glycogen um and um carbohydrate loading has fallen out of favor over the years and um I'm an ultra runner, an ultra runner coach, and I know a lot of people don't carbo load and um, a lot of coaches don't say not to. Um, but then you talk about the contemporary carbohydrate loading protocol is an abbreviated version of the original one. Can you tell us a bit more about that and whether you think um, people should do some form of carbohydrate loading before an event, especially ultra marathon, which is often, you know, six, seven, eight or more hours? <clears throat> Sure. So I think there's two different aspects to this. And the first is that when we start learning about something and we simplify the message, sometimes we then make it a, a, a wrong message. And so when sports nutrition started to get some publicity behind it, the message about carbohydrate being so important and, and sort of being then translated into this idea that everybody should eat lots of carbohydrates all the time, yeah. regardless of what they're their goals were, um, you know, became a, a message that that sounded good, um, but we now know that that's you know really an, an oversimplification, and it's in many cases not the right message for people. So we've had to then reorganise what we mean by eating enough carbohydrate. So we now talk about it as being high carbohydrate availability, meaning that you're matching your intake with the fuel requirements of the exercise that you do. That's going to differ from athlete to athlete, but it's also going to differ in the same athlete from day to day because athletes have, you know, yeah. hard training days and they have training, you know, or rest days where there's very low requirements. So we now are more comfortable with this idea that you can eat more or less 
carbohydrate and still be doing the right thing in terms of fueling your muscle. Now, the second part of the issue is that we now know that in some sports, athletes compete in events who, which have a duration or an intensity that's larger than the amount of muscle glycogen that's normally stored. And so in those sports, to try and get that high carbohydrate availability to sport, support optimal performance, we need to have ways of making the muscle better able to store glycogen and or taking extra carbohydrate during the event. So that first part of storing glycogen is the carbohydrate loading issue. And we've changed our understanding of what's needed to do that because the original studies that were undertaken in, in Scandinavia in the 1960s were done in essentially untrained people. You know, most Scandinavians are healthy, recreationally exercising people. Um, and so they brought to the table muscles that were somewhat prepared to be able to store glycogen, but not to the same degree as our very highly trained athletes. So in lesser trained people, you have to do a lot more work to get the muscle to be able to store lots of glycogen. And that involved this very, um, not complicated, but it was a week long event that really required some commitment. So you had to start off by doing some um, long exercise to deplete the muscle glycogen and then have a couple of days of keeping it low by having a um, low carbohydrate diet and continuing to train. And then when you switched to three days of high carbohydrate eating and started to taper the training, you got that overcompensation in your glycogen storage, leading you to be able to go into your race with higher glycogen stores. So that worked really well for that population, but more research down the track was able to show that in highly trained athletes, a lot of that process is unnecessary because that's what their training has done for them already. And mm. so with some sort of highly trained marathon runners or race walkers or ultra marathoners or um, Ironman triathletes, there's just some of the people that would benefit from having optimised glycogen stores prior to the event, just probably 48 hours of tapered training and upping the carbohydrate intake is enough to, to maximise glycogen stores. So that's probably what we do now. Um, some of our athletes heading over to the Olympics will be doing something like that for their events. The other little twist that we might put on it, and this is what I certainly do with the athletes I work with, is to have a low residue diet for the 72 hours before the race because what you're wanting to do then is to take into account that carbohydrate loading is going to store extra glycogen and water. And that means that there's going to be an increase in body mass as a result. Mm. And, you know, when you're at the, the start of a, a marathon or a race walking event or a cycling event, riding up a, a hill, you want to be as light as possible. And so even that sort of extra kilo, kilo and a half of, of weight, if you can find a way to counteract that, then that's helpful. And so the low residue diet means that we can strip all the fibre out of the gut and reduce the weight of the contents. But the other thing it's also useful for is that in, no runner wants to be caught short at the marathon start where they suddenly have to find the porta potty. If you can empty your, um, your gut of fibre so that you don't have to do the number two on the morning or you can at least um, know it's going to be a small one, that's really helpful at the race line just to help some of the gastrointestinal challenges around the event so 
our carbohydrate loading protocol probably still goes for that three days prior to the event, although some of it's about going to the low residue form of eating and then as we get By low residue, that, do you mean low fibre? Yeah, low, low fibre. Um, mm -hmm. So it really is stripping out all the vegetables and fruit and the, the fibre content of that. We still have some, but you can have very well-cooked um, soft vegetables that are all mass, mashed up that you can reduce the fibre content. And certainly yeah. using white cereals so that um, all the sort of the healthy side of eating around the whole grains now is sacrificed for a couple of days just to get ready for the, for the yeah. event. Yeah, and that makes sense um, because there's nothing worse than standing on the finishing on the starting line and that's what's on occupying your mind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, for a, for a marathon, it's recommended to consume during the race between 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Would you extrapolate that recommendation for ultramarathons as well, or would it change? Well, look, it depends a lot on what you are as an athlete. So, um, in fact, in some of the events where we're trying to push people to the maximum intensity um, for a marathon length, we might actually ask them to consume more than 60 yeah. grams an hour. Those 30 to 60 grams were really based on the idea that you were trickling in some extra carbohydrate as the glycogen stores were starting to um, dwindle and needed another carbohydrate source. But um, it was also based on the idea that because gastric emptying and, and intestinal absorption of carbohydrates seemed to be about 60 grams per hour max, there was no benefit to taking in extra. Yeah. More recently, we've found that there are ways to get around that block. We can both train the gut, but also use carbohydrate sources that contain different sorts of carbohydrate forms, which have different intestinal absorption pathways. So if you can put glucose and fructose together, which are absorbed by different transporter mechanisms across the intestine, you can get higher amounts of carbohydrate absorbed. So when you're talking someone like Kipchoge, who's running at a really high, yeah. high intensity, um, both absolutely and, and relatively, and you're going to get through all his glycogen and still want to have more carbohydrate supplied to the muscle, 90 grams an hour is a, is a target that we aim for. And that's you know something that requires a lot of, um, dedication to the training part of things and training the gut but also training the behaviour because you've got to have an athlete who's able to grab things and consume them on the run or the walk or the ride. Um, so with some of the really higher intensity events that, that are um, you know, more than two hours, that target might be required. But if you as a, an athlete think, well, I'm running a marathon, and I need to do that, you might have missed some of the subtlety. If you're doing a marathon and you're taking four and a half to five hours to finish, you know, good on you for being able to do the event, but you're not using the same amount of, of fuel because the intensity of which you're moving is much lower than Kipchoge. So you might be doing the yeah. same, you might even be in the same race as him if you're doing one of the big yeah. city marathons that has both the elite and the recreational involved. But for you, that 90 grams now is not necessary because you're just not using fuel that fast because of the pace that you're going at. So 30 to 60 might be more of a target that's matching what your muscles are using. And that's where ultramarathon gets interesting because there are both um, races that people can do at really 
sort of maximal intensities over four or five or 10 hours. Um, and you might need more than the 30 to 60, just depending on what the, you know, the, the total race fuel requirement is and how much you've stored in your muscle. But if you're doing like a 24 hour or 48 hour kind of a really, really ultra race, well then yeah. it's more like probably the 30 to 60 that you sustain over that period that's going to, to meet your muscle requirements. So it's, it's a lot about knowing what the requirements of your race are and what are your opportunities to meet it in terms of nutritional support, both prior to in the preparation and then during now, um, speaking of protein, do you believe like in some of these really long ultras, say for 24 or 48 hours, <clears throat> it's important to ingest some protein and some fats and that sort of stuff? Or should we just be trying to stick purely to carbohydrate? No, look, I think both in practical forms and in nutritional requirements from the theory of it, that including some protein and some fat is sensible. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is that I think the protein requirement over that long period is, is important for both the, the, um, the sort of maintenance of, of the repair that's going on in the, in the muscle and, and other body requirements for protein. But also in terms of the practical side of things, the flavour fatigue is a real issue. Yeah. If you're just having you know, sticky carbs all the time, you, you, you think, oh, gosh, not another lemon-lime drink that's going to go. And so you, you do need different flavours and different textures of food. Um, and if you, if you look back to the history of what people do in some of those longer events, you know, think about cycling um, as well as the ultramarathons, people have gravitated to being able to use a range of real foods, whole foods, when they exercise. And that's made possible because of the lower intensity um, of what they're doing, plus um, sometimes the culture of that sport is that it has aid stations or feed zones or handlers or some way in which the athlete gets access along the road to, um, to food, or they have um, the ability to carry it with them. And so you think about cycling, I mean, there's always been a tradition of having jerseys in the back of yeah. your, um, or pockets in the back of your jersey so that you can carry things. And um, Cyclists have always taken sandwiches and cakes and real foods out with them. And I think in lots of ultramarathons too, there's that sort of um, cultural um, tradition that there's a wider variety of foods that are used. And because people are moving at either a lower intensity or um, in the case of cycling, it's a much more um, gentle um, action of, you know, there's not the joggling up and down of your gut and there's more opportunity to sort of freewheel on the bike and take your yeah. um, hands off the handlebars and get something to eat. So there's both the tradition and the opportunity to do it. And it's it's interesting sometimes that we look at what athletes are doing, think that's interesting why. And then when you see what they're doing, it's almost like they've worked it out for themselves. Yes, it was good to have protein. So that's why you were taking those ham and cheese sandwiches with you. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. <clears throat> now, um, many ultra runners have gotten into um, having a low carbohydrate, high fat diet because, you know, because you're moving at a lower intensity, they believe you're using fat as your fuel. Um, what is, uh, I know you've done research on this and, and can you maybe share with the listeners what your conclusions on that were and, and the reasons for that? Yeah, so we've done quite a bit of research now looking at um, keto diets. And again, it was, 
based on observing what people are saying that they're doing. And um, when you get to be as old as I am, one of the interesting things is you see the same messages sort of recycled. So when I was very early in my dietetic career, there was, um, there was a lot of interest in the keto diet around the study that was published in 1983 by Steve Finney, in which he showed that you could adapt to being on a low-carb diet. And in his experiment, there was no benefit to performance, but there wasn't the expected detriment to performance that you would have expected based on the glycogen story. And he was able to show that the muscle can retool to, you know, to double its rate of fat oxidation, even in well-trained athletes who are already better at burning fat than, than non-exercising people. Um, but we went back, um, 2015 was our first study, to look at whether that was um, able to be exploited by athletes in race walking. And, and so in race walking, there's a 50K event, um, which takes about three and a half hours to do. And so that's getting into the territory where it's not going to be possible to store enough glycogen with, with the preparation. So we need ways of being able to extend fuel stores. And so one route is to be able to take in extra carbs during the race, or the alternative is to become less dependent on carbohydrate altogether and use the keto diet to be able to make the muscle a fat burning machine and therefore try and do the race just based on fat. So we did a number of studies and we found no benefit to performance and in fact an impairment of performance because we'd forgotten one of the um, important factors of physiology and biochemistry and that is that fat requires more oxygen to produce ATP than does carbohydrate. It's about sort of five to six percent difference which is important if you're moving at higher intensities. So with our race walkers and our studies we used a 10,000 metre race walking event as our performance measure. And when we're looking at that, athletes are moving at um, above 80% of VO2 max and sometimes, you know, sort of closer to 90% of VO2 max. And in those ranges of intensity, it's really important to be efficient with how much ATP you can produce for the amount of oxygen you can deliver to the muscle. And under those circumstances, the ketogenic diet isn't helpful. In fact, it impairs performance because with carbohydrate, you're going to get more ATP for that amount of oxygen that's already sort of at maximum level. If you're doing something at a much lower intensity, if you're doing ultra marathons and it's a consistent effort of sort of 60 to 65% of VO2 max, well, then you probably have capacity to be able to burn fat because you can always increase the amount of oxygen supply to the muscle to, to burn that fat. It's not limiting. Um, it's interesting then when you get these sort of hybrid events and you think of an Ironman event, which goes for long periods of time, but because it's made up of three individual legs, the relative intensity of each of the individual legs is higher than just the eight or 10 hours of the event itself would predict if you're doing it just um, as a, a single um, mode of exercise. But also the um, tactics in the event need to be taken into account. So if you're able to do an event where you're sort of pacing yourself and it's all steady state at lower intensity, then you could say, yes, there's a, a potential there that the ketogenic diet would be um, useful, but particularly if you're in an event where it's difficult to get extra supplies of 
of fuel during the race. You know, if you're doing a self-supported race where you have to carry everything yourself, then it's going to be difficult to keep supplying yourself with the carbohydrates if that's the route that you're going with the muscle fuel use. But if you're doing even a you know, 10 hour event where there's going to be tactics that mean that you need to be able to have higher intensity pieces, mm-hmm. um, then that's where it's going to get tricky to, to work out whether if you put all your eggs in the fat basket, whether the fact that you're going to have to um, have a higher intensity piece, which might be you know, racing against someone else to get up the hill or to the finish line, you, you might find that that's where you lose out. And when you look at, at um, cyclists who live that life, I mean, when you're doing the Tour de France or when you're doing a, a, a single day's um, road race where it is a six to eight hour event, the peloton might be moving at 60% of VO2 max for a lot of the race, but it's not won by the peloton. It's won by the guy that, you know, that can do the breakaway or sprint to the line. And so in cycling, you find that they do have very high carbohydrate intakes. And there's been some really interesting work that's come out of um, some of the tours. In fact, I've you know, been watching the Tour de France as we've been um, over the last couple of weeks. And a number of the teams are tweeting or you know, giving some information around what they're feeding their riders. And it's very highly carbohydrate-based. And you know, sometimes there's absolutely prodigious amounts of, of carbohydrate consumed. You know, things that the average um, person would just just be gobsmacked by because it's it's, it's truly an, a, an amazing feat to both have the intestine absorb it, the muscle use it, and the team supply it to the athlete in the first place. You know, the, the range of clever ways in which they can get the fuel to the rider and the rider can consume it and make use of it um, to, to get the myojean is um, just incredible. Yeah, a lot to learn from, from that all of the cycling and especially the Tour de France. You've also spoken, I believe, about periodizing between high carbohydrate and low carbohydrate, high fat as, as maybe an alternative. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, so this goes back to thinking about what each exercise session is doing and thinking about the way that nutrition can support it best. So if we're dealing with endurance athletes um, who are doing a mixture of both high volume and high intensity training, there could be some advantages to sometimes having training done with low glycogen availability. So even though we've said that the glycogen is really important to support the muscle's performance, and there are some high quality training sessions an athlete will do that should get that sort of support so the athlete can train with high quality, Maybe some of the other sessions that they do, the, um, the lower intensity recovery sessions or the sessions that are done at the beginning of the um, endurance phase. So when you periodizing your, your training for the year, there's you know, phases of sort of the beginning part where you're just building up the fitness again from the break you've had and you're doing um, work that's trying to improve just aerobic capacity. That kind of um, exercise, when it's done with low glycogen, can amplify the the training adaptation because training with low glycogen means that the signaling pathways in the muscle that are producing some of those adaptations are upregulated. And there may be some also some advantages to having periods post-exercise where you don't immediately restore glycogen so that that adaptation phase lasts longer in the the post-exercise recovery. So we now have this idea of 
periodization of carbohydrate, having um, phases where we might, might deliberately around some sessions of exercise in the week, either do it fasted or do it with low glycogen. Now that doesn't need a high fat, low carb diet to achieve that. It's sometimes simply a matter of just putting training sessions together. So if you're doing a, a very um, big session in the morning and then not having a lot of carbohydrate between the next session you do in the afternoon, that will mean the second session is done with low glycogen. And so it sometimes is not so much a, an issue of a lot of dietary change, so much as the way that you schedule the training sessions together. And in fact, when we've done studies and looking at the literature in general, um, those studies in which... Um, hang on a second, I've just lost you. Have to go off and come back in again that's it I, I don't know what happened there sorry keep going keep going so just keep talking yeah yeah all good um all right where were we so um, yeah um if you have a look at the if you have a look at the literature in terms of um the periodization of carbohydrate where clever programs have been put together where some sessions of the week are done with low carbohydrate availability so faster training or the glow glycogen training and where there may be some sessions in which the glycogen isn't restored immediately post-training, when that sort of clever periodization is done, studies where it's been exploited with sort of lower trained people or, or athletes of lower caliber generally show that that kind of training is better at producing the adaptations and ultimate performance improvements than athletes doing the same training but not all the clever dietary manipulation however when we've done those studies and other people too have done them in elite athletes we don't find any benefit over just having a high carbohydrate availability approach all the time and that we think is because the way that elite athletes train with such volume and such intensity all the time is that it's already periodizing glycogen availability. Now we've had race walkers who do a 40K walk in the morning and then do a 10K walk in the afternoon. Now, I don't care what you eat between those two sessions, that second session will be done with low glycogen. Yeah. And so it's possible that one of the, the cultural and traditional reasons why athletes train as hard as they do is that that, does that glycogen periodization. Now, whether we add more to it with our nutrition strategies to amplify it is probably a matter of how hard the athlete's training. And athletes who are lower caliber tend not to be able to absorb the same amount of training. And so for them, maybe those dietary manipulations to add a bit more light and shade to the glycogen story is useful, but at the very high end, maybe it's, it's less useful. I'm not saying that it's not something that we would completely um, avoid, but it's probably um, not as useful. The one thing I should say, though, is that these kinds of training manipulations around the carbohydrate availability and the dietary strategies to amplify it, they're all done in a really clever way. And it's not just what some people think when they hear a message of, oh, let's just do it all the time. Let's just hit it with a big stick. So you know, sometimes we discover something, oh, yes, training with low glycogen amplifies the training response. So then people say, oh, let's just do it all the time. We'll just train with low glycogen all the time. And then they wonder why there's no benefit. Um, and it's because they've just taken one message and not recognised that the whole business of, of performance 
is doing different kinds of training, which <coughs> builds a little part of the piece of what it's required to be an elite athlete. So there's a lot of different attributes and characteristics that make up a good performance. And each of the training sessions that people do is adding a little bit to that component. So trying to just make all your training or all your diet a single flavour is failing to recognise just the complexity of what you need to build together for peak performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was actually going to ask, what was your opinion on training low, which is also known as fasted running, because, um, it, and you've given it a little bit there, but then like you were saying, a lot of runners go, well, if it, if it works, I better go fasted run every time I run. So, and, and you're saying there's not necessarily every, any benefit to every morning going, well, I'm not going to eat and I'm just going to run for a couple of hours fasted. It, it doesn't necessarily work that way. That's right. You've got to think about things. So some sessions like that, particularly early in the season, might help to amplify that first aerobic capacity building phase. But then yeah. you might think, well, gosh, we've already heard that we need to be able to consume carbohydrate during exercise in some events so you obviously need to train by doing that so that you train your gut and also you train your behavioral um, capacity you know you, you you can't suddenly learn to grab something and eat it or take your hands off the handlebars and get it into your mouth if you haven't practiced it in, in training so you've got to think of all the different aspects of what we need to build up and then periodize them at some point into the program so yeah. it might be in the early part of the season quite a, you know a lot of those early morning runs are done faster but as you get closer to a race you need to start making it more purpose-built for the the race that you're doing and you know bring in the capacity to be able to consume and utilize the, the fuel during the, the session so I, I think that's one of the really good reasons that people should be seeing a sports dietitian to learn all the little intricacies of what's required to build up to that peak performance and learn how to integrate all the different ideas into the, into the program. So you, you don't want to be a one-trick pony. You want to be you know, somebody that understands what, are the, you know, what do I have to build together? What's my perfect performance going to look like in terms of the biology and physiology of what I'm doing? And how can I start building all those little components into it in the training phase? Yep. And yes, that's a good um, point that people, athletes, if they're really serious about nailing their nutrition, need to see a sports dietitian. Mm -hmm. um, I remember there was always a lot of talk about, you know, a refueling sort of window of opportunity. Is this a, a real phenomenon or just an old wives' tale? Look, it's not such an old wife's tale. It's just another example of when we find some new tidbit, we try and kind of go crazy with it. And, you know, everything's all about what's tweetable and what can be said in 140 characters. And I think, yes, we certainly found that post-exercise, there's a period of time when there can be um, an amplification of recovery processes. Now, how useful that is for an athlete depends on what the sport is that you're doing and what the goals of the next session are. So if you're playing basketball once a week or you know, doing a park run once a week and maybe a couple of times doing a bit of training during the week, you've got a lot of time of recovery between sessions and the event that you're doing is not going to, you know, you're not needing to amplify your glycogen stores to get through the session itself. So there's no real need to try and be proactive with recovery 
to get to the next stage. But if you're if you're playing at Wimbledon or you're a, um, a cyclist in the tour or you're doing a couple of sessions or three sessions a day as a triathlete, and there is a need for some of those sessions to be able to quickly help you to refuel for the next session, then you've got to use that recovery time really cleverly. So there's, there's not a lot of recovery that occurs in the absence of nutritional support. So if you're thinking about, I need to maximise my fuel stores for the next session, then you need to start eating carbs early so that all the recovery your time that you've got becomes a refueling time. If you're thinking about the, the protein recovery in terms of you know, synthesising new proteins to either build muscle if, you, if you're doing resistance training type work, or if it's recovery of um, the damaged tissue that you might have um, occurred in a, a contact sport or in a sport involving eccentric contractions, or if you're thinking about just you know, building more enzymes and, and proteins to help with the aerobic um, pathways, well, then that all requires protein substrate to build those new proteins. And so then the recovery message becomes important as well. So we've got to think about you know, what, what's, what needs to be recovered and how long have I got to do it? Is there a need to be able to be more proactive in it? And sometimes it's not a matter of just shoveling down more food. Sometimes it might be that you're putting your training sessions and your diet together so that when you train, there's a meal coming soon afterwards and so that you make use of that meal to build those recovery blocks um, just naturally. One of the things I think that's been a bit of a disadvantage about recovery eating, it became this idea that you had to suddenly quickly shove food into you. And sometimes the type of food that people were choosing wasn't really nutrient dense and it was convenient and practical and it might have been easy to you know, consume when you've just done a whole lot of exercise and you're not really feeling hungry. But it often meant that we were filling athletes full of low nutrient density food that they really didn't need. And, um, you know, I, I often laughed when my son was small and we'd go to swimming carnivals. I mean, you still see it now that a, a swimmer will go and swim a 100 metre race and then they'll get out of the water and they'll go straight to the bag of lollies and eat, you know, 200 grams of lollies because they need to refuel. Yeah. And it bears no resemblance to the requirement of the session they've just done. Um, or the fact that they, they might have one more swim a couple of hours later. There's, you know, we've got to think about nutrition in the bigger picture rather than just take that simple message and, and um, oversimplify it. Yeah. Um, no, just changing tack a bit. Um, there's where I wanted to talk about iron and iron deficiency. And, and I read that you said that iron deficiency in athlete populations remains a common issue. Why is this, and and how do what what do iron stores mean for athletes? Well, iron's a really important nutrient um, because there's different functions it has in the body. We think of it a lot as being part of the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood through hemoglobin, but also into the muscle through myoglobin. And iron's also involved in a lot of um, the the metabolic processes. It's a, a coenzyme or involved in enzymes that are important in those reactions. So an athlete who has low iron status may have suboptimal ability to, to, um, to, to deliver oxygen. And we've already talked about how important oxygen is as part of the fuel burning process. 
we certainly don't want athletes being anemic, but um, probably at the beginning of my career in the 90s, we were beginning to realise that we could measure iron stores in the athlete through ferritin measurements, which gave us an, um, some sort of insight into how much reserve the athlete had in terms of, of their iron. So we want to keep haemoglobin levels up high, but we also want to have some storage iron um, available so that as the athlete is using more iron than the average person, and they do that because they're continually breaking down red blood cells or um, using and um, needing to recycle some of the iron stores in their body. And one of the interesting things we found more recently is that the ability to do that, which is somewhat under the control of, of a hormone called hepcidin, is impaired in athletes. When, when we exercise, there's a period of time um, during and post-exercise that this hepcidin hormone is increased and it's, its um, effect is to reduce our ability to absorb iron in our diet or to recycle the iron that's been released because we've done damaged red blood cells and, and um, we've liberated the iron that was in those red blood cells and normally we'd recycle a lot of that. But when hepcidin levels are high, that's um, an impaired process. So athletes are needing more iron, but they're also having an inability to absorb some of the iron that they're consuming at different times of the day because of the interaction of exercise and this hepcidin hormone. So what we're now really interested in teaching athletes to do is to increase the absorbable iron in their diet through their dietary choices, but also to think about when they're having it during the day in relation to exercise so that it's not a wasted effort. You know, it's, a, it's a shame to be eating the iron that you yeah. need, but they're not being able to absorb it well. And that goes for the, um, the iron supplements that athletes might need to take as well on occasion. Sometimes we need to um, prevent or treat iron deficiency by using iron supplements. And sometimes when athletes are going to say altitude training, where we know there's going to be um, a requirement to use more iron to make the most of that altitude training um, event, we supplement them with some extra iron going into that and during the event so or during the altitude training so that they can maximise their, their um, adaptation to the, to the training. So when it, whether it's with the iron supplements or whether it's with the iron-rich meals that our athletes are consuming, we've got now clever ways of trying to put it into the day so that it's um, not in that period post-exercise, the sort of three to five hours post-exercise, where um, there's some impairment of absorption. We try and organise things so that um, the iron that's in the diet's consumed at a time that it can be absorbed well. Mm -hmm. And we also think about the mix and match of nutrients. So there are different other um, elements in our diet that can either assist or impair iron absorption. We know that um, the phytate in fibre and calcium um, inhibit iron absorption, but the vitamin C and presence of meat or um, animal protein at a meal increases iron absorption. So by helping athletes put their meals together to mix and match some of these factors that enhance iron absorption, we can help athletes get a better result in terms of the iron that's actually available into the, to the um, body. Yeah. And would you say, it, it, I'm, I'm gathering that you're saying also that it's better to get your iron from food rather than um, 
supplements, although you can use supplements, but it is better. Yes, so we would try and get the food first process about every aspect of diet that there's you know, benefits from getting our nutrients from food, but there are times that an athlete might need to have the support of iron supplements, either to quickly um, reverse iron deficiency or in the case of things like altitude training, yeah. ensure that they've got adequate iron to make sure they maximise the benefits of the, the training that they're doing. Yeah. But one of the really important things that athletes should do is to get their iron status measured rather than just assuming that they know what they're feeling. I mean, a lot of athletes think, oh, I'm feeling a bit tired. I'm probably iron deficient. I'll just have a couple of, you know, I'll just take a couple of iron supplements to treat that. And they may be completely missing the mark that there are other reasons that they're tired, but they're also not using iron supplements in the best way possible. So um, it sounds easy because you can buy iron over the counter that oh, you can just treat yourself. But this is one of the areas that really needs um, good input from um, a sports physician to be able to get the iron measured and then the dietitian's input to help people know how to both get the food first thing working well, as well as knowing when to take the iron if it's needed to be taken. Because there is problems with taking too much um, iron, isn't there? Uh, yes, look, there's, there's two aspects to that. There's one is when it's unnecessary and it's masking another problem that the athlete should be looking into. Um, sometimes there's, you know, people aren't getting enough sleep or they're not getting enough carbohydrate or there's some other reason for that and just simply taking the iron tablets completely missing the, the real yeah. problem um, but you can overdose on iron um, and you can also miss the chance to diagnose a sort of a nasty cause of iron loss you know sometimes people have got ulcers um, gastric ulcers or sometimes they're losing blood from other parts of their body and they may be putting the band-aid on it in putting extra iron in from the supplements to try and um, match the iron losses but they're not getting to the underlying problem and so sometimes you know people then get themselves into a, a real problem that the underlying cause of the iron loss just wasn't being um, managed and it will lead to a medical event that's much more severe than it needed to be. Mm, yeah fair enough. Now going back to what you said earlier when we first started talking about you've been doing some you did some studies on having protein across the day um, that really interests me. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. So there was a lot of interest, um, particularly from Stu Phillips' work, showing that post-exercise protein is a really important part of maximising the response to exercise. And it was first um, discovered in terms of resistance exercise, but has also um, the same message around endurance exercise or any of the exercises that an athlete does. It, it, amplifies the synthetic pathways for protein and the kind of proteins that you build are um, then based on the type of exercise that you're doing. You know, your body's remarkable at being able to say, um, right, I need more of this protein versus that protein, depending on the exercise stimulus. But providing the protein post-exercise to um, amplify that response is important. So there's then this idea, well, when's the best time to eat the protein? We certainly know post-exercise is useful, but because each session of exercise can amplify protein synthetic responses for about 24 hours, there's a good window to say, well, I can get the first 
post-exercise um, protein synthesis happening immediately, but when else should I be trying to get value for that, that session I've done? If I've got 24 hours that I can um, exploit to, to benefit from it, when should I be eating next time? And so we did a study that compared the idea of eating three square meals where you have um, protein sort of at separate times of the day, but you know, six hours apart and a big, big version of it versus having a little nibbling approach where you're having little amounts of protein all throughout the day versus having these sort of, well, a substantial amount of protein, but not a bucket full of protein. So we looked at um, eating the same amount of protein, but spreading it in different ways with different amounts. And we found that in terms of the overall um, protein synthesis response, that having these um, periods of sort of a 20 gram protein um, bolus every sort of three to four hours was the most efficient way of being able to, to use the response from the single exercise session. Now that 20 grams of protein needs to be thought of. We, we did it in a very simple way that the, the athlete was just consuming protein at that time. And we know that the um, important part of the protein delivery is that we need to eat enough protein to get our leucine levels in the blood to a threshold. And when you just have something that's a very simple protein meal, so particularly a liquid form of it, where it's consumed and it's absorbed really quickly, the response in the blood of the amino acid, particularly the leucine, is very, very rapid. If you have the same food or same amount of protein in food form, it's a much slower absorption rate because there's more food, there's fibre, there's fat that slow down the rate of the um, absorption of the protein. So um, we now sort of scale that and say that if you're thinking about the amount of protein that you're consuming, certainly a target of that 20 grams is appropriate if, if it's just as protein in liquid form. But if you're eating a big meal, you might need to eat 30 or 40 grams of protein to get the same amount of increase in leucine, just taking into account that the meal has a much more um, sort of flattened response of the amino acid absorption. So I, I guess what we're telling people these days is spreading protein over the day more equally is important. And for most people practically, that means trying to make breakfast and lunch a bigger protein meal and having something post-exercise that's a good protein source. Most of us eat enough protein full stop, but we tend to have not much for breakfast, a little bit for lunch, mm. and then a cow for dinner. And so it's very unequally distributed. If we get, get people to sort of um, not back end their day so much with protein, but distribute it more equally at their meals and at a post-exercise um, recovery opportunity, then that's the, the most efficient way of being able to get the benefit of, of exercise on terms of protein synthesis. Excellent. Um, there's a, we've sort of touched on a few of them, like diets like keto, but there's also, you know, vegan veganism or vegetarianism. Um, what is the best diet for endurance athletes? Is it focusing on one of those sorts of diets or just in general? In general Look, I think there's many, many ways to get to the same end. I think the idea of being able to um, periodise carbohydrate to be able to get high-quality protein their philosophies that can be met through different food styles. 
And so you can you can eat a vegetarian or vegan diet. It's, it's a bit more difficult to particularly meet the protein requirements with that, but you can, particularly if you see a sports dietitian, learn how to choose the foods that are going to achieve those philosophies. Um, you, can, you can eat it with a more, what we call an omnivore diet, eating a, a larger range of foods. Um, I'm particularly in not my own personal view is that the more different foods that you include in your diet, the more easily you can meet all your requirements. And it makes your life a bit more streamlined too, because you've, you've got the whole food supply available to you. When you start to restrict food intake from different food groups, um, then you make it a bit more difficult to get what you need. It's not impossible, but it just requires a, a greater um, sort of commitment from you. Now, I really admire people who are vegans and vegetarians who do this because of either religious beliefs or because of their commitment to the sustainability and animal, um, animal welfare. Um, and so that's a really good reason for, for, for choosing that lifestyle. But if, if I meet an athlete and they said they've gone vegan and you say, why is that? And they say, oh, because some famous movie star's done it. Um, and when you listen to what they're eating, it's they're just, you know, eating a really poorly chosen diet and buying a few vegan powders and whatever. That's that's not the commitment that's required to do the best job. And it's not a good look for veganism either to be you know doing it so poorly. So I would suggest that there'd be ways in which that person could either improve the way they're following a vegan diet or consider going back to a, a wider range of foods, but having meals that include the vegan philosophy so that they're doing it well for those portions of their, of their week or day, but being able to eat a, a wider range of foods if, if that's more sustainable in terms of um, you know, what their lifestyle commitment can allow. Yep, fair enough. Now, um, if an athlete is listening to this and thinking, well, I'd like to go and see a sports dietitian, how would they go about finding like a, a really good one? Well, there's a great tool on the Sports Dietitians Australia website. It's called Find a Sports Dietitian. And so you can go in and type your location and then you'll find the list of sports dietitians that are available in your area. And there's also some information about those dietitians that might suggest that they have particular areas of expertise like even though we're all involved in um, sport there are some people who specialize more in working with team sports or maybe working with vegans um, you know, if, if I wanted to learn more about um, how to look after someone who's got gastrointestinal challenges around this their sport being able to eat and feel comfortable around it then there are dietitians who specialize in that so the sports dietitians website's a great way of sort of just finding both the location and the special specialised expertise of sports dietitians that might meet with some your particular challenges. All right. Well, I'll put the link to that website um, in the show notes so listeners can, can have a look there. Thank you so much, Louise, for coming on the podcast today and sharing such wonderful information. I, I know the listeners will have found it really, really helpful. Terrific. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. Thank you. Bye. Bye. 
Wow, what a wealth of information Louise is. I don't know about you, but I was hanging off her every word and writing notes. Listen to it again if you need to, just this time take some notes because it's such good information. She is amazing. I hope you learnt a lot that you can now apply to your running. Of course, seeing a dietitian in person is a really good idea. I did this when I first got into running and it helped no end. I found that I was actually not eating enough and the dietitian got me to eat more. I lost weight, my running improved. It was amazing. Check out the show notes to find the link to the Sports Dietitian website. Have a great week of running and training and have fun out there on the roads and trails.